Jesus plus nothing. 100% natural, no additives. Andrew Farley is celebrating your freedom in Christ. Call in and ask your questions at 877-956-9566. That's toll free at 877-956-9566. Via satellite from Texas, it's The Grace Message with Dr. Andrew Farley. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Grace Message. I'm Andrew Farley. So glad you're joining us this Sunday afternoon. That number to call, 877-956-9566. We've got four open lines right now. Plenty of room for you to get in with your question today. Maybe you've got a question about a scripture passage. Perhaps you heard something in church uh, just this morning and you're not sure about it. You want to put it to the test. That's exactly why we're here for you right now. 877-956-9566. We are live on Sirius XM and a number of FM and AM stations across North America right now for you. And maybe you've got a personal issue going on in your life, in your marriage, with your kids, in your church. You're looking for that grace perspective. Join us right now. It is a toll-free call, four open lines. It's the perfect day to get in, 877-956-9566. Now, if you're a first-time caller today, you got to know we love it. We love to hear from our first-time callers. We'd love to hear from you. And if you're a veteran listener, maybe you've already called us in the past, perhaps even a few times, and you got something new on your heart this afternoon, join us right now. Again, three open lines remain at this very moment, so you'll be sure to get in 877-956-9566. Now, if you're joining us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, or whatever platform, perhaps our website, our mobile app, you're welcome to call in and be a part of today's conversation as well. Again, we are live this Sunday afternoon. You're listening to The Grace Message. I'm Andrew Farley, and we welcome your calls on any biblical topic uh, that is of concern to you. Join us right now. That number, once again, 877-956-9566. All right, we're going to start out in New York, and we'll talk with Frida. Hi, Frida. What do you got for us today? Um, so uh, my question is about um, repentance. So I hear a lot of people like use the approach of, you know, almost in a caring way, if you don't repent, then, you know, that person is going to hell. You know, you ought to do this. So, like, why do you think people do that when Jesus never really took that approach? If they're really trying to preach the good news, what's repent or go to hell going to do for the person that's really listening to the message? It's supposed to be good news. So that's just my question. Okay, yeah. Well, the repentance that saves a person is not quitting all their sins. That's what we need to really clarify. Uh, the repentance that saves is when a person moves from unbelief in Jesus toward faith in Christ. Remember that we are saved by hearing with faith. That's what saves a person, not stopping their sinning. So to be very clear, and I think we need to, uh, first of all, nobody has stopped their sinning. <laughs> Every Christian I know, uh, James says we all stumble in many ways. So there's not a Christian on the planet who has stopped sinning if we all stumble in many ways. 
Now, what is it that saves a person? It is not the ceasing of sin, uh, but it is instead the turning away from unbelief toward belief. So you're absolutely right. I mean, we we talk about repenting and believing, uh, and that's really what is on the apostles' minds. He's not saying, promise never to do it again, and then you'll be saved. No, what he's saying is that you've been walking in one direction, in the direction of unbelief, and now pull a 180 and change your mind about the identity and the work of Jesus Christ. And when you change your mind saying, yes, he is Savior and he is Lord, and I'm calling upon him to be saved because I believe he's the Son of God, he's got the authority and power to save me, and I believe that he died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead to give me new life, and I open my heart to him, that is a repentance that saves. I have moved from unbelief to belief. Now, if I used to steal hubcaps and I steal another hubcap, am I saved? Yes, because stealing or not stealing is not what saves you. Uh, It is faith in Christ. Now, if I had a lying problem and I continue to struggle with lying, am I saved? Yes, because lying or not lying, that's not what saved you. It was faith in Christ. Now, if I had a lust problem, I get saved and I continue to struggle with lust as I grow in Christ. Does that mean I'm not saved? Of course, it doesn't mean that. I am saved because you're not saved by lusting or refraining from lust. You are saved by grace through faith. It is not of yourself. It is a gift of God. It is apart from works. And we have to learn the difference between our performance and Jesus's performance. We have to learn the difference between what we are doing and what he did. It's not our works, but it's his finished work. And so the real repentance that saves is not a promise to never sin again, uh, but it is really putting our confidence in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So... Uh, You know, it says there's a godly sorrow that produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And I got to tell you, there is no regret when you're saved by Jesus. What's not to like? Oh, my goodness. No regrets. Do you love being righteous? Well, you get that. Do you love being forgiven? You get that, too. Do you love living under God's grace, being totally accepted and loved? Well, hello. You get that, too. There's nothing not to like. There's no regret, no remorse over this kind of repentance. It is a godly sorrow that says, I'm tired of being tired. I'm sick of being sick, and I don't want to be in Adam anymore. I'm sick of this life, and I need a new life. And Jesus, I want you to give me uh, this new life. So that's the repentance that saves And, uh, oh, my goodness, it is awesome. There's no regret, no remorse in it. And uh, when, when Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, John had already taught a repentance that was stop your sinning. 
Remember John the Baptist. His message was stop your sinning and then look out. Look out for someone who's coming. Uh, John the Baptist was a forerunner. He had a foreshadowing for us. He was showing us that someone would come after him who was unfit to tie his shoes. Uh, excuse me. He was unfit to tie the, the Jesus's shoes. I mean, you get it. Uh, he's got John the Baptist, who's the greatest, the greatest among those who are born among women. And yet even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So John the Baptist had a ministry and John the Baptist had a message and uh, it was limited because there had not been a cross, there had not been a resurrection, there had not been a Pentecost, the giving of new life in that born-again way had not happened. And so the best thing John the Baptist could tell people is stop sinning and wait for Jesus. Now, with Jesus having come, guess what? Our message is not, hey, please stop sinning. Our message is fix your eyes on Jesus, and he is the author and perfecter of your faith. And so we lead people to faith in Christ, not self-improvement. We lead people to faith in Jesus, not just some sort of sin management system. So you're absolutely right. People talk about repentance, and when you say that word in a church of 10,000 people, you might have 10,000 opinions about what that means. So I'm glad you brought this to our attention. Uh, it is repent and believe in Christ, and that is the repentance that saves. That is the faith that saves. So, Frida, thanks for your question there in New York, and we love hearing from you. Reach out to us again anytime. All right, well, let's go now uh, to... Uh, Texas, and we'll talk with Greg. Hey, Greg, what do you got for us today? Hey, Doctor, how are you? I'm a uh, second-time listener. I travel quite a bit, and uh -huh. um, I actually found you on the Sirius radio, and you were talking about, or one of the things you had talked about, was the Lord's Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer, and the way yeah. that you unpacked that or, or went about it and I've been born again. I, I'm 64. Been born again since I was 27, and um, and I was just amazed at your perspective of that, and wondered if you might once again just um, mm -hmm. kind of refresh me on, yeah, on what sure. you were talking. Yeah, well, you know, people will recite this Lord's Prayer all over the the world on Sunday morning. We'll recite it. People will memorize it and uh, repeat it, and yet let's not forget that Jesus literally says, don't be like those Pharisees, don't be like those Gentiles, don't be like those religious zealots who want to be heard uh, for their many words on the street corner, uh, and they have meaningless repetition, meaningless repetition of prayers uh, and Jesus says, don't do that and don't be like them. And then, uh, you know, five minutes later after we read that, <laughs> there we are uh, reciting the Lord's Prayer. And many of us, I think, don't even know what we're saying. Uh, we just very fast, in a very fast manner, repeat, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Well, I mean, first of all, the kingdom has come. Uh, the kingdom is Jesus, and Jesus has come, and the kingdom was among them, and the kingdom began, really, you look at the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Christ, you look at Pentecost, you look at the giving of the Spirit, uh, you look at the fact that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, I mean, the kingdom has come, <laughs> and so this first part, he is he is talking about how this kingdom needs to come. But now we look back and we say, well, it has come. I mean, what a fulfillment. Now, furthermore, he is showing them uh, that if they uh, want forgiveness from God at present, now hear this, at present, 2,000 years ago, when Jesus is out there on the countryside, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, so there's a mount, and he's standing there, on this hillside, and there are people all around. Maybe they're sitting on rocks and boulders and gathered in the field, and, you know, they're listening. And he says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, you could read that and just memorize it and gloss over it and repeat it for the rest of your life, not thinking about what you're praying, but hit the pause button for a second and listen to exactly what Jesus is saying. He is saying to these Jews 2,000 years ago, do you want to be forgiven by God? Well, then pray this way. Father, forgive me just as I have forgiven other people. That's what he's saying. Forgive me exactly like I have forgiven other people. Now, if you don't believe that that's what Jesus means here, well, all you got to do is keep reading because in verses 14 and 15, he interprets himself. He says, for if you forgive others, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. All right, now I have to ask, is that the gospel? You heard me. Is that the gospel? Are you forgiven because you're nice to other people first? Are you forgiven because you forgive others first? Are you forgiven because God looks down and says, Gee, Greg, gee, Andrew, you've been a nice person lately. I've seen that you've been forgiving people, your mother, your brother, your friend, your neighbor, your fellow churchgoer. You've been a really nice guy lately. Therefore, I'm going to forgive you. No, no, that is not the gospel. You are not forgiven because you're nice. You are not forgiven because you forgive others first. So what in the world is going on here? Why does Jesus give this as a prayer for others to listen to, hear, and emulate 2,000 years ago? Because he wants them to come to a place of desperation. He wants them to get that little gulp in their throat. Imagine it. There you are listening to Jesus, and Jesus says you have to forgive others for God to forgive you. And he says he wants you to pray this way. Father, please take a survey of my life. Survey my life and look at how nice I've been lately and then treat me just like I've treated others. Ouch. Ouch. I mean, that is going to leave a mark, right? And that's the whole point 
of this Lord's Prayer, Jesus wants them to understand that if they only get the same kind of forgiveness that they have been doling out to other people, then they are up a creek without a paddle. They have no hope and and really no forgiveness to rely on because apparently God is only going to be as nice as they are nice. So is that the gospel? No, sir. The gospel is you as a Christian are forgiven because Jesus shed his blood, not because you're nice. You are forgiven because of the cross, not because of your treatment of other people. So when Jesus is sharing this message, we have to remember, I mean, come on, something big hasn't happened yet. What is it? Well, this prayer is before the cross. It's before the resurrection. It's before Pentecost. It's before the new covenant. It's before the church. I mean, this prayer is pre-cross. Now, why are you forgiven? Because of the cross. So if this is pre-cross, then I need to put it in context. And so what is the context? Well, look at this sermon. I mean, oh my goodness, this is a deadly sermon. This is a killer sermon. You look at this, he says, cut off your hand, pluck out your eye, be perfect like God, give to whomever asks of you without question, let people beat you up. It goes on and on. You have heard, don't murder, but I tell you, anger is the same as murder. You have heard, don't uh, commit adultery, but I tell you, if you look with lust, it's the same as adultery. This doesn't quit. I mean, it is in your face. It is over the top. It is totally undoable. It is impossible. Nobody can live to this standard. Not a person I'm talking to right now, none of us have plucked out our eye or cut off our hand in our fight against sin. None of us has tried and succeeded at being perfect like God is perfect. None of us is running around letting people beat us up and giving money to whoever asks without question. None of us is doing this, and that is the whole point of this Sermon on the Mount. So when we get to the part where he says, ask God to forgive you the same way that you've been forgiving others, well, guess what? The context is the same. It is still something that is impossible that we cannot bear. You could not endure. You could not last one day with forgiveness that only matches your best efforts. You could not last one day as a Christian if you were only forgiven to the same degree that you have forgiven others. You wouldn't last a day. You wouldn't even last an hour. So it is a joke. And the whole point of what Jesus is sharing is he wants them to come to grips with their hypocrisy. He is basically saying, how can you ask God for forgiveness when you yourself treat other people with bitterness and resentment? You don't deserve it. So he is calling them out for their hypocrisy, just like he is calling them out when he says, hey, you, you give money when you want to be seen. How about you give money in secret? 
you get to pray in public and you're seen. How about you pray in secret? You are fasting and abstaining from food and making a big deal of it, putting on a sour face so that you're seen. How about you fast in secret and don't let anybody know and put some lotion on while you're at it so that you look good so people don't realize you're fasting. How about you hide your giving and hide your fasting and hide your prayer because right now you're a show-off. And every single human being that heard this sermon is convicted. And that is the whole point. So when we get to the Lord's Prayer, it's not any different. You know, it's crazy. All I can say, Greg, is it's crazy that you can go to church one week and the pastor is just preaching a blazing, awesome sermon on the finished work of Christ. He says, you're holy and you're blameless and you're forgiven and God loves you and Oh, the grace of God shown in all of its glory. And everybody says, Amen. And then, and then, seven days later, you come back and he says, Now let's turn to Matthew 6. You know, folks, you'll be forgiven if you forgive others. Now, Pastor, I thought you said last week that I was forgiven and cleansed of all my sins, that Jesus died once, that it's the finished work of Christ, and that I'm a totally forgiven person, and once saved, always saved, because I'm totally forgiven. And now, seven days later, you're saying, well, I'm forgiven if I forgive others. So which is it? Which is it? What are you going to do with the words of Jesus in Matthew 6? And folks, this is why... We have to understand the New Covenant. If we don't understand the New Covenant, we are going to read this Sermon on the Mount and then, I guess, just try our best. You know, give it our best shot. Maybe God grades on a curve, and then we start watering it down. You know, he didn't really mean uh, pluck, pluck out your eye. He just meant try real hard. You know, he didn't really mean cut off your hand. He didn't mean be perfect like God. He just meant try to be good. You know, he he didn't really mean give to whoever asks of you. He just meant try to give 10% to some world missions. He didn't really mean, you know, let people beat you up. Uh, certainly we can defend ourselves. I mean, he didn't really mean, you see, and we start watering down every piece of the Sermon on the Mount to get it the way we like it, to make it fit with our agenda And at the end of the day, the Sermon on the Mount is still staring us in the face. And it is perfect, and it is impossible, and it's the law on steroids. It's Moses 2.0. It is the Old Testament standard in your face, the true spirit of the law with no hypocrisy added, and nobody can live it. And that's the whole point. And until we come to that realization, we're going to keep on reading the books, you know, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, God's highest standard. The Sermon on the Mount, give it your best shot. The Sermon on the Mount, the Christian's path to growth. The Sermon on the Mount, the sweet message of Jesus about love. We can sugarcoat it. We can give it a subtitle. We can make it sound palatable and doable. Doesn't matter, folks. Matthew 5 and 6 are still staring us in the face anytime we go back there, and we're not even close. 
you know, you look at the summit of law keeping and we're still at base camp. You look at the pinnacle of law-based living and we're still at the bottom. And Jesus comes along in this sermon and he basically says, you guys are a joke. I mean, you think you're close? You think you're at the top of Mount Sinai? Forget about it. You think you're doing good just avoiding murder? I tell you, you get upset with somebody, you get angry, it's the same as killing them. Hey, you think you're doing good just uh, avoiding adultery? Oh, bravo, you avoided adultery. Yay for you. But if you look with lust, even for a second, if you entertain a lustful thought, it's the same as having relations with them. And everybody's like, what? And yeah, that's the whole point. Nobody makes it out alive. So let's quit sugarcoating it. Let's let the law be law. Let's let the words of Jesus strike us right in the heart so that we realize I need God's grace instead. And I hope you hear that word instead. Because the message of the gospel is that you're not under the law, you're under grace. So as long as we teach the Sermon on the Mount as a nice little sweet passage for Christian growth, then we will never be letting the law do its work. Jesus is trying to see the law do its work. And he does that by showing them the true spirit of the law. And once you see the impossibility of the Sermon on the Mount, once you see the impossible standard of the law, then you realize your need for God's grace. So he was doing the best thing he knew how to do. It was, it was speaking the truth in love. It was evangelistic. It was showing them you're dead under Moses, and that's why you need Jesus. So, Greg, I hope that helps. I'll put you back on and see. Does that help uh, bring some clarity to the Lord's Prayer? Oh, absolutely. And, and um, you know, there's um, lately I've, I've gotten uh, quite a bit of revelation from from a couple of different perspectives. Um, and I've just I've, I've come to realize, uh, of course, you know, um, it's it's who the Lord was talking to and what message he was trying to get across. And even in sharing with my wife and daughters, um, you know, that I had heard this. And I'll be honest, I couldn't remember um, who you were that I had heard it. And um, I saw your program come on now. And I was sharing with them. And so many times we get it backwards. For example, you know, given it shall be given to you, pressed down, shaken together, good measure. Shall men give unto your bosom? Well, there's so many people that have perverted that and said, give and you'll get. Well, that's the wrong reason for giving. You know, right, you, you right. give not expecting. It's a principle. You know, you 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 with gravity, you jump off a building, you're going to hit the ground. You know, you give uh, not expecting in return, but God sees all things, and and He and the same way I think with this is that um, you know because we are forgiven and we understand that it's all about jesus christ then yes we do need to be forgiving merciful you know have the fruits of the spirit the the love joy peace patience, goodness you know and and being able to suffer long with folks but we don't we don't do it to get we don't we don't forgive to get so yes sir yeah yeah you nailed it my friend you got it that's it so uh ephesians 4 32 it says Forgive others as the Lord forgave you. 
Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Which came first, God's forgiveness or our forgiveness of others? Well, obviously, God's forgiveness comes first. And then we forgive others as the Lord already forgave us. Colossians 3.13 says the same thing. It says, forgive as he forgave you. So we are not being nice to earn forgiveness. Uh, What Jesus was teaching there is before the cross to show them their hypocrisy. And then after the cross, we see the Apostle Paul uh, expounding upon exactly what you shared. And that is that we get the privilege of passing on to other people the very same forgiveness that God has already given us through Jesus Christ. So great question, Greg. Appreciate you. Glad you found us on the Internet. And, folks, if you're like Greg, maybe you've heard a piece of uh, our message here, there, or, or over there, and you're wondering about how to get more, well, you can dive a little deeper at our website at andrewfarley.org. Again, that's andrewfarley.org. We are The Grace Message, and we're supported uh, by listeners just like you. Maybe you've been listening uh, for a week, a month, a year, maybe even longer. You've thought about giving to The Grace Message. Well, there's no better time than right now. We are sitting on so many opportunities, and God is opening so many doors. We have uh, news about answering, well, over 2,000 questions a day uh, online through BibleQuestions.com in 95 languages. I hope you hear that. 95 languages, Mandarin Chinese, Hindi for India, uh, so many languages around the world, including Spanish and Italian and Portuguese and Russian and on and on it goes, even Swahili. All of these languages and more are offered at BibleQuestions.com where we're finding people in the Middle East, people in Europe and Asia and Australia and Canada and all over the place are asking their questions and getting an instant answer in 10 seconds or less in 95 languages. So spread the word, text your friends, tell everybody about this. If you love the grace message, if you want people to get grace-based answers in 10 seconds or less in 95 languages, well then tell them. Tell them about BibleQuestions.com. It's our brand new tool. We're jazzed about it. We're pumped about it. We're reaching people all over the world at BibleQuestions.com. All right, well, let's go now uh, to uh, Georgia, and we'll talk with David. Hey, David, what do you got for us today? Hey, David, are you there? Yeah. Yes, I uh, I just wanted some help reconciling the the scriptures. I I will start off by saying that I uh, I used to kind of, how would I say this, didn't like... the so-called grace message, uh-huh. um, but I'm learning to trust in it and, and walk bold, bold to draw near to the throne of grace, mm-hmm. but I'm still kind of like in the middle and trying to reconcile scriptures, you know. Yeah. Um, in church today, we talk about being doers of the faith that, you know, in James, where yeah. it talks about, you know, you, you know, for the wrath of a man worketh not righteousness of God, so it feel like you got to go do some work. But then James come in, and I mean, Romans, Paul comes in Romans and say, we conclude that a man is justified 
by faith, without the deeds of the law. And I'm just like, okay, well, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out <clears throat> the happy medium. I mean, there, do we go all the way grace, or do you kind of have grace plus works? Or Like, I'm just... Yeah, just, yeah, I hear you. Okay, all right, well, we go all the way. I mean, Ephesians, I'll just give you a, an overview. Ephesians says... As far as salvation, I mean, just hear this. By grace you are saved through faith. It is not of yourself. It is a gift of God so that no one can brag or no one can boast. So clearly, uh, whether it's Romans or Galatians or Ephesians, I mean, you're going to find this message over and over, uh, David, that we are saved by grace through faith, and it is not of ourselves. So... Uh, let there be no doubt concerning how to get saved. Now, the question is, you know, does that mean then you just sit around in a lazy boy chair for 80 years and you wait for Jesus to come back? Uh, You could do that, but you're going to gain a lot of weight. You could do that, but you're certainly going to get a passive attitude. You could do that, but you're going to miss out on a lot of friendships. You could do that, but you're not going to be expressing the person that you're designed to be. You could do that, but it's going to be pretty boring. So at some point, you're going to decide, I would assume, not you personally, but we decide at some point, hey, I mean, look at me. I'm righteous, holy, blameless. I've got Christ living in me. I'm indwelt by him. I'm a new creation. I'm fused to Jesus. I've got a vine branches relationship with him. I am equipped and I'm designed uh, to do something. So then I realize, okay, he has prepared in advance works that I can walk in. Now, these are not complicated. We are sheep. We're not rocket scientists to God. We are sheep. We're very simple-minded. So I like to think of it as T-ball. I mean, you know, T-ball. You remember, they have the T, and then they have the ball on top of the T, and then they give you the bat, and you stand there. Your parents are watching, and all you got to do really is just dink, just dink right there, right off the T. It's ready. It's prepped. And everything has been prepared in advance for you to dink that ball and then run for first base. So, likewise, God every day has prepared in advance these good works that we get to walk in, and it's exciting. And, yes, there are, there's fruit bearing. That, you know, there's fruit bearing because we got the Spirit, and it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of the law. It's not the fruit of Moses. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And if the Spirit lives in you, he's not going to be passive. He's going to be active. So that's something to look forward to. Now let's talk about James 2. You know, this one is, uh, well, it's challenging. And I think there's a lot of debate about it uh, over the last 2,000 years. So much so that uh, Martin Luther wanted to take James and, you know, just get like a razor blade and just kind of slice it out of the Bible. That's right. Martin Luther said that James doesn't belong in Scripture. That was his opinion. Now, I don't agree with that. I think that uh, James chapter 2 can very easily, very easily be understood, and it doesn't disagree with Paul. So, you know, you got Romans 3 and 4, a man who does not work but believes he's justified by faith. I mean, how many times does Romans say justified by faith? 
and even Galatians, justified by faith, not by what you do. Now, here's the problem. You crack open James 2, and at least at a first glance, it appears to say something different. Now, if you don't think it says says something different, hang on, because here's a zinger, all right? Verse 21. Are you willing to recognize, verse 21, was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac? All right. Oh, my goodness. It says justified by works. What in the world does that mean? And then verse 24, he says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Oh, my goodness, what does that mean? And then it appears a third time, verse 25. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works? Now, again, I hope you hear this. All I'm doing is reading. I have read the phrase three times, justified by works, in verse 21, in verse 24, and in verse 25. Now, you have to put your thinking cap on and say, all right, I'm not allowed to delete these verses. I'm not allowed to shove these verses under the carpet and act like they don't exist. Because there are people that oppose my teaching on this chapter, and they basically throw these verses in the garbage. They act like they don't exist. And what I'm offering is a solution, a solution that is better than the solution of Martin Luther. Martin Luther's solution was yank it out of your Bible. My solution is to understand it in context. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if you back up, you start seeing the example of James's idea of works. What does James mean when he's talking about works? Does he mean Uh, A lifelong record of, you know, doing good stuff, giving a lot of money, helping the lady across the street and going to church and being a good person. No, not at all. Look at what he says. The first example is when somebody is freezing or hungry and you, quote, don't give what is necessary. All right. So the first example is not doing what is needed. Now, the second example is Abraham offering his son Isaac, okay? And then the third example is Rahab opening the door for the spies. All right, I would ask you, how many times did Rahab open the door? Once. Now, does that sound familiar to you? Has there ever been a time in your life that you opened the door and it justified you? Anyone? You tracking? I mean, come on. I stand at the door and knock. Whoever opens the door, I will come in and live with him and he with me. So what happened when you opened the door? You were justified. You were made righteous. Why? Because you opened the door to Jesus. Now, what about Abraham offering Isaac? How many times did Abraham offer Isaac? One time, right? Well, was there ever a time that you offered anything to God and were thereby justified? 
Well, you offered yourself to God. Lord, I open the door of my heart. I offer myself to you to be crucified, buried, and raised to newness of life. Just like that Isaac was going to be killed. Well, you offered yourself to be killed, didn't you? Because you were crucified with Christ and you became a new creation. So here's what I'm saying. James is not talking about doing 27 things or 55 things or a bunch of works in order to try to earn righteousness. James is not meaning that. James knows the gospel. James agrees with Paul. Remember, yeah, they had a feud and a fight, but remember that Paul goes up to Jerusalem and he says, I just want to make sure, this is in Galatians, I just want to make sure that I have, am preaching the same gospel that you disciples are also preaching in Jerusalem. And they get together and they hang out and they have a powwow and they decide, yes, we're on the same page. And that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that Paul and James are on the same page. You don't need to take a pair of scissors to the book of James. You can ignore Martin Luther concerning the book of James. James belongs in the Bible. But if we're going to confront James, then let's not sugarcoat it and let's not dance around it. Three times there is a very... Uh, curious phrase, justified by works, justified by works, and justified by works. So you have to put your thinking cap on and you have to confront that. And I'm telling you that in context, what James is talking about is not a lifelong record of good stuff. What he's really talking about is, have you opened the door? Have you offered yourself have you done what is needed in response to the gospel? Because there's a decision. Even the demons believe. Are the demons saved? Nope. Why not? Because they can't open the door. They are not able to offer themselves to be saved. They can believe really good theology. They have good spiritual information. But they're not like Abraham who offered Isaac. They're not like Rahab who opened the door. They are passively sitting there agreeing with facts about God. What is it that saves you? It is actually believing the gospel, calling upon the name of the Lord, opening the door of your heart. There are so many ways to express it, but the bottom line is there's a decision. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. There's a decision. Whosoever believes in him will not perish. There's a decision. So what James is really saying is that you can't sit around like the demons with a bunch of dead faith that means nothing. A living faith is a faith that makes a choice about Jesus. You got to decide about the Son of God. And when you do, that decision to hear the gospel and believe it, that is what saves. You're justified by grace through faith, not of yourself. So I believe this jives perfectly with the Apostle Paul. Uh, and uh, at the end of the day, you got some challenging language that you have to confront. And instead of shoving it under the carpet, the solution, I believe, is to look at the examples that he gives and then decide 
Okay, I see it, James. I see what you're saying, that you don't need dead faith like the demons. Instead, a living faith is a faith that decides that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. So I hope that helps. Uh, reach out to us again anytime, David. Great to hear from you there in Georgia. Uh, and call us back anytime. Well, you're listening to The Grace Message. I'm Andrew Farley. If you want to dive a little deeper into James chapter 2, or maybe you loved what we had to say about the love and grace and forgiveness of God and how it relates to the Lord's Prayer, or perhaps something else is on your mind, well, you can find all of it at our website at andrewfarley.org. Just click on the Media tab, and you'll find thousands of free resources that are searchable by topic right there at andrewfarley.org. All right, well, let's go now uh, to, how about uh, Maryland, and we'll talk with Michael. Hey, Michael, what do you got? Um, so in Genesis, it says that Melchizedek was a king priest of Salem. So many people believe that he was a pre-incarnate Christ. So, like, was he? Uh, Okay, all right, yeah. Well, there's a lot of debate about that. I mean, uh, the bottom line, people think that he might have been an early appearance of Jesus uh, because, uh, well, it says he has no father, no mother, has no genealogy. He's not just appearing in uh, Genesis, but he also appears in the book of Hebrews. Now, you would uh, you would gain a lot of understanding of the significance of Melchizedek if you also look in uh, the book of Hebrews, because then you see this idea of Melchizedek being compared uh, with Levi. And there's a significance to that in Hebrews chapter 7, uh, right around verses 1 to 3. So let me let me say, first of all, it doesn't matter if Jesus showed up for a few minutes and talked to Abraham, or if Melchizedek is just uh, Melchizedek, because at the end of the day, Melchizedek represents Jesus, and that's what Hebrews is telling us. So I don't want to get bogged down in whether Melchizedek was actually Jesus or whether Melchizedek represents Jesus. Now, my opinion, you know, for what it's worth is I think, yeah, it was an early appearance of Christ. I do believe that. That's my opinion. But uh, I, I want us to dig into Hebrews 7 and understand what the author is telling us. Now, here's what he's saying. All right, Abraham is on a lonely road, and he's just been at war, and he's won the battle, and now he's got a wagon full of stuff. You know what I mean? The stuff that he took from the other army. So Abe is walking along, he's got this wagon, he's got all of his his troops with him, and he's feeling great, he's just conquered the world, he's loving life. All right, now he meets up with this mystery man. We'll call him Mel for short. Now Mel is, uh, is a mystery man because nobody knows who he is. They don't know his dad, they don't know his mom, they don't know his DNA, his lineage, they don't know where he's from, they know nothing about him. But Abraham meets him on a road. Now, Abraham's got all this stuff. Now, let me tell you, there was a very common practice 
in the Middle East, when you go to war and you win, then you find someone of royalty, or if you run into someone who's a king or a queen or whatever, it was a very common practice to give them some of your spoils of war. So it would be a sign of respect. So Abraham sees Melchizedek, and he goes, oh, my goodness, this is a high priest. This is an important figure. This is royalty. So he reaches in the wagon, and he grabs uh, some stuff, you know, 10% of his spoils of war, and uh, then he hands it to Melchizedek. Now, what's the purpose of this? Is the purpose so that you will tithe thousands of years later? No, 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 no. Hebrews 7 never goes there. Is the point that you should give 10% to your church? No, 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 no. Not one single time, never, ever in the New Testament letters, never does it say to give 10% of your income to the church. That is not what the passage is about. Let me tell you what it's about. All right, Hebrews 7 goes on to say this, that you got two people. You got Melchizedek and Abraham. And Abraham basically bows down to Melchizedek. What does that tell you? Well, Melchizedek is more important than Abraham. Abraham is lesser and Melchizedek is greater. Now, why, why, why do we need to know that? Well, it's awesome. Listen to this. Who is in the loins of Abraham? Who is Abraham's offspring? Well, every single priest of the law is in Abraham's loins, right? The descendants of Abraham are going to be the Old Testament priests. Now, Abraham is representing his whole lineage, his whole family. All those priests of the Old Testament are now bowing down and paying homage to Melchizedek. What's this about? Well, here's what it's about. Melchizedek represents Jesus, and Abraham represents the Old Testament priests. And so the message is that Abraham is lesser, Melchizedek is greater, Old Testament priests are lesser, and Jesus is greater, and the Old Covenant is lesser, and the New Covenant is greater. Now you got it. That's it. That's the meaning of Hebrews chapter 7. It's about two people which represent two kinds of priesthood, which represent two kinds of covenants, and the New Covenant wins. God's grace wins. God's grace is better. It's a better covenant founded on better promises. Never once do they mention your wallet. It's not about your wallet. It's not about your tithing. It's not about you. It's about Jesus being greater than those Old Testament priests. And so it's an amazing, beautiful passage. And Melchizedek means a whole lot. Was it actually Jesus appearing in the Old Testament? I think it was. But even if it wasn't, it doesn't matter because the takeaway is still the same. Melchizedek represents Jesus, and Melchizedek is greater, and therefore Jesus is greater, and therefore God's grace is greater. So why settle for less? Why settle for the law when you can have God's grace? Why settle for partial forgiveness when you can have total forgiveness? 
Why settle for righteousness on a credit card, an IOU, when you can be the righteousness of God? Why settle for living under a bunch of rules when you can live under God's grace? Do you see it? The new covenant is better, a better priest, a better promise, a better covenant. And that's what we enjoy today. So, next time you hear that word Melchizedek, you'll know what it's all about. It's all about the new. It's all about Jesus. It's all about God's grace being superior to any other way. Michael, I'll put you back on and see. Does that help make sense of uh, Melchizedek there? Yes, that was very helpful. Thank you. You bet, my friend. Well, call us back anytime. Uh, great to hear from you. Again, folks, you've been listening to the grace message. We've got just a minute or two left. I'm going to uh, go out to Wisconsin and talk with Carolyn. You've been so patient with us. Go for it, Carolyn. What do you got for us? Hey, Carolyn, are you there? Well, we may have lost Carolyn. We're going to go to Joe in Maryland to finish out today. Hey, Joe. Oh, hi. Uh, I'm glad you just got me on the phone in time, Pastor Farley. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, uh, this is Joe. Uh, yeah, I was asking, uh, does, what does God erase, if anything, or do we retain our memories from earth? Okay, yeah. Well, there's no frontal lobotomy when you hit heaven, right? I mean, it is true. Revelation tells us, Joe, it says, no more tears, no more sorrow, no remorse, no regret, no sitting around with disappointment, no wishing, no woulda, coulda, shoulda attitude. All of that will be gone, but it doesn't happen through a frontal lobotomy. No, it happens through a heavenly perspective. Because remember, we leave that old body and we get a resurrection body. We leave behind all that stinking thinking and we have a whole new perspective. So you're going to remember your time on earth, but you're going to see it in a whole new way. A whole new vantage point. As God reminds you, you are forgiven and cleansed and holy and blameless and right with him forever because of Jesus Christ. For more information on the broadcast ministry of Dr. Andrew Farley, please visit andrewfarley.org. That's andrewfarley.org. Join us next time as we invite you to celebrate the grace message with Dr. Andrew Farley. This program is sponsored by your generous financial support.